Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Close your eyes and picture America. What first comes to mind? Times Square, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Lincoln Memorial and Reflecting Pool, perhaps? For many, the image of the United States is a Western one, an endlessly unspooling road with scrubby desert either side. The West is a real place, of course, but it's also an imaginary one, where people find freedom, start again, prove their strength. That allure, plus relatively cheaper housing and lower taxes, is drawing tens of thousands of Americans westwards. Yet the West is also ablaze with wildfires. Smoke obscures those big skies. Water is becoming more scarce. Temperatures are stifling and projected to get even hotter. It's an old Western theme, man versus nature. And this time, nature has the upper hand. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, even as more Americans are moving there, are parts of the West becoming uninhabitable? In this episode, we'll gaze at the giant trees at Muir Woods, examine the century-old water law that still governs who draws how much from the Colorado River, and ask how the Aravistes are changing Western culture and politics. Is the Western migration sustainable? And what happens if it's not? Joining me this week to discuss all of this are Erin Braun, The Economist's very own Westerner, who covers the Mountain West, based out of Denver, Colorado, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Erin, how's it going with you? I gather from our conversation earlier this week that you've got pretty smoky air because the wildfires are burning nearby. We do. Yeah. Normally I can see the mountains from my house, from my windows, and they're all covered up by smoke. So a bit weird in Denver this week. Fasman, how are things your end? You're back from glorious Maine. Things are okay, John. Thanks. I'm at the end of, and I think a few weeks ago when I was in the middle of it, I said I was at the stage when I was thinking about you know running away and changing my name. At this point, I'm resigned to the gallows and uh, I'm going to be shot of it this weekend. So I'm okay. Aren't we a cheerful bunch? <laughs> Fasman, I find it comforting to hear that even somebody like you, who's published novels, a couple of nonfiction books, still finds filing a 10,000-word essay for The Economist agonizing. It just doesn't get easier the more you do it, right? It gets no easier, and I don't think it should. I think you should always be confronted by the, the terror of the blank page. I know I always am. And if I weren't, I'd be, I'd be really worried. John Prito, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Erin. Thank you for asking. The sky's clear here. No wildfires, so all good. Let's begin with one of those sublime Western landscapes. 
For many Americans, the appeal of the West has always been about more space, fewer taxes, a healthier outdoor life, and extraordinary natural beauty. But does the dream match reality? Stevie Hertz, a producer on our sister podcast, The Intelligence, went for a walk with ranger Cassie Anderson at Muir Woods, a national park full of redwood trees just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. The trees here in Muir Woods are over 200 feet tall, and Muir Woods' tallest tree is about 260 feet tall. They get a large portion of their water from the fog. So they need to grow so high that the tops of the trees are in the clouds. Coast redwoods only grow on the California coast in the fog belt. From about the Big Sur area to the California-Oregon border and only along the coast. Where the fog peters out, the redwood range stops. Mule Woods is so inspiring that in 1945, international delegates sent to San Francisco to establish the United Nations took time to visit the park. The U.S. Secretary of the Interior at the time, Harold Ikes, wrote, Here in such a temple of peace, the delegates would gain a better perspective and sense of time that could be obtained nowhere in America better than in a forest. Muir Woods, he said, is a cathedral, the pillars of which have stood through most of recorded human history. We're just seeing green all around us. Green ferns, green California bay laurels, tan oaks, redwood sorrel, this whole entire forest floor. And everything that we're seeing is all green. And just the reddish brown, those kind of ruddy trunks of the redwoods shooting up from it. They're giving us a lot of shade here in the forest, and it's just patchy sunlight coming through. People have been shaping Muir Woods for thousands of years, and this beautiful place has been shaping us, too. We're from Fort Lauderdale, and this was number one on our plan. Uh, the trees are awesome. What people call big trees in Florida are 30 feet tall, and uh, these are a lot taller. <laughs> On a weekend earlier this month, tourists had traveled from across the country to visit the Redwoods. It's beautiful here, peaceful, can connect with nature, and yeah, it's just magical. And there's only a few places on the planet where these amazing thousand-year-old creatures live. In 2017, over a million people visited Muir Woods, up 30% from a decade before. The next year, the National Park Service introduced a parking reservation system there, which didn't seem very in keeping with the Western ideal. It's not just Muir Woods. Americans are flocking to areas of outstanding beauty. Big Sur, Yosemite and Yellowstone National Parks are all seeing the highest visitor numbers in their history. Now, these increasing numbers of day-trippers are changing the natural splendors of the West. Redwood trees are extremely resilient, but with so much interest and more people over time going out and, and visiting them, they can really do some damage, especially to the root system. Jessica Inwood is a conservationist at Save the Redwoods. So up in Jedediah Smith, Redwoods State and National Park, way up north near the Oregon border, is a place called Grove of Titans. But there was no trail there. But about 10 years ago or so, someone had posted the coordinates to the location. So with things like it was social media, like Instagram, people tagging places, People just started inundating the area with no trail systems. With the influx of new visitors, little plants on the forest floor, the understory, 
were getting trampled. They might not have been what people were there to see, but they're all part of the same ecosystem. There's a lot of photos of before people were really out there to after, and you saw this massive impact of basically just the understory being wiped out. You know, in an ideal world, it might be nice to just leave it alone and not build a trail out there, but you're seeing the direct impact, and you know that over time it's only going to get worse. It is possible to find compromises between sightseers and nature, but hordes of nature-loving tourists are not the only problems facing California's redwoods. This is the stream where the salmon are. You can see it's low. It would be low this time of year normally. But California is also in a drought right now, so this is lower than we would like it to be. Fires are changing year by year, and we're seeing an increase in megafire that's partially due to fires being suppressed over the last century or so. And that means that fuel on the forest floor, like dead stuff in the forest, dead dry stuff, builds up and builds up and builds up. And so that's one component of why we're seeing such catastrophic megafires throughout California today. And another component is warmer temperatures and less rainfall and drought due to climate change. Northeast of Muir Woods, the Dixie Fire is burning. The second largest wildfire in California's history, it currently covers almost 200,000 hectares. It's so far destroyed over a thousand structures. The only larger fire in Californian history burnt last year. Erin, what's true at Muir Woods? The overcrowding, the temperature increases partly due to climate change, the wildfire threat, lack of rainfall is true of the West more broadly, isn't it? That's right. We're seeing those same problems in national parks and public lands across the region, and not just the climate impacts, also the overcrowding that the parks are seeing and how people are trying to navigate how to keep these places safe and make sure that conservation is top of mind while allowing Americans to see these beautiful vistas. And that's it's a tough balance, I think. You yourself have moved from the East Coast to the West fairly recently, which makes you part of a very big population movement. Can you describe the scale of what's been happening over the past couple of years? I think to really get to the heart of that migration movement, we have to acknowledge that it was something that was underway before the pandemic hit. Um, You can go back to the 1990s and see the population of Colorado, where I am, skyrocket. But more recently, if you look at the new census data that we got from 2020, you can see that the states that gained congressional districts were Oregon, Montana, Colorado, Texas got two of them. Um, And then the only other states that added districts are also in the Sun Belt out east. And I think that's Florida and North Carolina. So you can see the trends in migration within the country are moving south and west. Yes. And in fact, we've just had the first really detailed census data from the 2020 census data come through. And it really confirms that trend. You know, among other things, it shows that Phoenix, Arizona was the fastest growing of all American cities over the past decade. And it's now overtaken Philadelphia in size, which is really striking. 
Let's stick on population pressure for the moment. I mean, it does seem that nature is sending a strong signal that more and more people migrating to this region isn't necessarily a sensible idea. Yeah, that's right. You can see why people want to move out west, right? It's it's beautiful. You can have some space. It's generally a low tax reason. I mean, it's similar to the reasons why people are moving to the American South also. And, and there's a there's a large swath of the South, especially South Florida, that's that's similarly threatened. What's striking to me about the population shift, especially over the past, you know, 20 years, but even the past 10 years, is the change in the region's politics. You now have congressional delegations from the majority of Western states that are democratically controlled. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. There was a lot more mixture 10 years ago, and Western republicanism sort of defined the Republican Party in the second half of the 20th century. You had, you had Barry Goldwater's sort of libertarian-inflected republicanism that Ronald Reagan picked up and ran with. That brand of politics is now is now functionally dead. I don't think the Republican Party is, is, is as dead out West as most other people think they do. I think to the extent that it has to modernize to survive... I would look to California and the West, where sort of demography is is ahead of much of the rest of the country. But it's striking that a region that really birthed modern republicanism is now so heavily democratic. I would just point out that there are a lot of Western states that voted more for Donald Trump than anywhere else in the country. And I'm thinking about places like Wyoming and Idaho and Montana. So like the Intermountain West, where I spend a lot of time. That said, there are also Republicans in places like Utah who are thinking about what to do about climate change. And so I think maybe we're starting to see the beginnings of a shift to where the Republican Party out West, at least, is trying to grapple with these issues that Democrats for a long time have dominated. Erin, in your reporting, have you found a lot of people in the West discussing this question of whether the current level of migration is sustainable? It's on the minds of everyone, especially during the pandemic, I think, when we all had this narrative of people flocking from big cities like New York and San Francisco to mountain towns and hamlets. It has really dominated the conversation out here and made people think about just how desirable new migration and development is. Okay, thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to look at water rationing and how a pact drawn up in the 1920s shaped the settlement of the West. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. This week's issue has a story about the German election, which features a model built by Checks and Balance's very own Elliot Morris. Our take on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's latest report and a Lexington on race and the US military. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. The mid-19th century saw gold rushes in the West. Hundreds of thousands of people flocked there with their shovels and pans, lured by the promise of treasure. But for those who want to build their lives in the West today, the most precious resource to be found in that dry earth is not gold, but water. Erin, you've been looking into the fraught history of water rights in the West. I have, yeah. Ever since I moved to Denver, I've been kind of fascinated by the history of water in the region. It's impossible to ignore no matter what story you're writing about. 
And given the wildfires and the heat waves and the drought and the mudslides that have been in the news, it was starting to feel to me like a big portion of the country was becoming uninhabitable. So I went to Lake Mead to find out if that was just hyperbole or if Westerners are maybe not as worried as we should be. The Colorado pours its waters into Lake Mead. Water is released through the Hoover power plant turbines in a year-round flow to irrigate over one and one-quarter million acres of desert land. Serve municipal and One of the best views of Lake Mead is at Hoover Dam, which created the reservoir when it was built on the Colorado River during the Great Depression in the 1930s. ...land for America. Millions beat paths to this one-time wilderness along the Colorado River to picnic, go boating, swim, fish, and enjoy these important outdoor reclamation products. The first thing you notice when you're standing on the dam overlooking the lake is this white, chalky-looking bathtub ring on the walls of the canyon surrounding the reservoir. And that ring shows visitors just how much the lake has shrunk in the past 20 years. It's this really potent, remarkable reminder of just how severe the current drought is. And the Colorado River is the lifeblood of the region, so southwestern states watch it incredibly closely. Here's Doug Ducey, the governor of Arizona, talking about the drought contingency plan that was signed back in 2019. Here's the bottom line. We're in a 19-year drought. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Arizona and our neighboring states draw more water from the Colorado River than Mother Nature puts back. It's time to protect Lake Mead and Arizona. It's time to ratify the drought contingency plan. Two years on from 2019, the drought is even worse. The reservoir's water levels are so low that the Bureau of Reclamation is expected to declare the first ever water shortage for the river next week. The Colorado's flows have shrunk about 20% since 2000, and scientists attribute about half of that to human-caused climate change. But making things worse is the fact that the Colorado River Compact, which first divvied up the river in 1922, dramatically overestimated the annual flows of the river. Through the ages, the river has gathered to its bed the snow-fed rivulets of the Rockies, flowing southwestward in its wild 1,400-mile descent to the Pacific Ocean. The river is measured in terms of million acre feet, which is how much water it would take to cover an acre of land in one foot of water. The compact and its addendums hold that the seven states within the Colorado River Basin and Mexico are to split an 18 million acre foot river. And time and time again, climate scientists told me that the river has just never been able to live up to those expectations. To get a sense of how that happened and how it has affected the Southwest ever since, I called John Fleck, who is the director of water resources at the University of New Mexico and has written two books about water in the West. 
I myself have told the story for many years, the first way, um, which is, well, they only had 20 years of gauge data. It happened to be unusually wet. How could they have known? In fact, there had been scientists who said, in the period prior to this wet 20 years of gauge record, we have clear evidence of really big droughts. And therefore, if we look at our long-term expectations of the river, we should expect that those that periods of drought would periodically return, and therefore the total supply available is less than you think. We didn't find evidence that they had knowingly and purposely falsified so much as they found these findings inconvenient, so they just ignored them. But, I mean, why is that? Is that just, you know, we want the development, so we're going to follow the science that we want? Yes. That's exactly what it is. You know, in recorded history on the Colorado River. So you divide it up. While I was tooling around Las Vegas and Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, I also went to see John Ensminger. He runs the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which is the water utility for the Las Vegas Valley. So you have a legal system that needs 18.5 million acre feet to operate. The 20th century gave us a little under 15 million acre feet. So you're in a 3.5 million acre foot hole before you say, well, what if the 21st century is drier? What if the 21st century looks more like the 17th century that you know drove the Anasazi off the Colorado River Plateau? And then, what if it's the 17th century plus you know, anthropogenic climate change? And, and that's what you have to plan for. I think the central hope that I have is that as we renegotiate we use hydrologic modeling scenarios that are sufficiently dire, not because we're predicting we will have an 11 million acre foot a year river, mm-hmm. but so that we know what our plan is if we have an 11 million acre foot river. One of the things that was really hard for me to figure out while I was reporting and writing this story was how much I should be ringing alarm bells about climate change and the state of the drought, and how much I should be reminding people that in cities especially, people have been preparing for this for years. Las Vegas is a great example through conservation, recycling, regulations, and incentives They've managed to cut water use by 23% since 2002, even as 800,000 more people moved to the valley. So you look at those numbers and you see a success story. But scientists again and again the past few weeks have also told me how worried they are. When I was in Las Vegas, I met up with Kristen Avery, Nevada's climate policy coordinator, at this tiny, loud coffee shop, and I asked her how she has felt seeing the drought intensify. It's interesting because in some ways drought implies that it's ephemeral. And I'm sorry, 20 year drought, come on. You know, this is, it is a quote unquote mega drought, but a mega drought, that's probably just, that's where we're at, that's the future. 
it's pretty stunning. I mean, there's really good opportunities for conservation, et cetera, but these are difficult conversations. They're going to be trade-offs. Erin, is the problem here that the states that are party to the Colorado River Compact drawn up in the 20s simply draw too much water, that the compact as currently written allows them to do that? Or is it more a problem that there aren't enough places that, like Las Vegas, have mastered the art of using water more efficiently, and that if states uh, did more of that, then the kind of rationing we're about to see come in, I believe next week, wouldn't be so necessary. I'm going to give you a really unsatisfying answer and say that it's both of those things. Um, (laughs) Part of the problem is definitely that given the compact that was signed 100 years ago and has been updated since, municipalities and water users have gotten used to surpluses. And now there are no surpluses. And so cuts are going to have to be made. But the hard thing is going to be the fact that cities like Las Vegas and L.A. and San Diego and Phoenix that all take Colorado River water only use a fraction of the river. Most of the Colorado's waters go to irrigated agriculture. It's something like 70 percent. And so if we're talking about really how to conserve water and deal with the shortages that are coming, agriculture is going to have to take a hit. And for a lot of people, that is politically untenable. It's such a big part of the economy of the region and the identity of the region. What are the crops that are so thirsty? It's a good question. A lot of the country's leafy vegetables come from Arizona. And then you have water-intensive crops like alfalfa that are more expensive to produce than they are to buy, essentially. So if we're going to address the Colorado River shortage and the cuts that are likely to come going forward, farmers might have to fallow fields. They might have to reconsider the crops that they're growing. And those are really difficult decisions that are going to have to be made. I see where your mind is going with this, Fasman. I mean, given you're writing about food technology at the moment, are you thinking that a lot of this agriculture could just be done in a lab or in a factory? Yes. I mean, I'm thinking that a lot of this agriculture could be done in a far more efficient way. First of all, you can you can choose to grow crops like alfalfa that are thirsty elsewhere, and you could choose to grow a lot of other crops you know, hydroponically and more efficiently. And it's important to note also that this is not the only region where you have these sorts of water fights, right? I was based in in Georgia for years, and there's an ongoing fight between water, I think, that feeds into the Apalachicola in Florida. But there are a couple of basins in that region. And Georgia and Alabama and Florida have been fighting over them for years. But it seems to me not quite so existential, right? The fights are about making sure that Florida has enough for its oyster industry, which has been harmed by rising sea levels and salinity, and that Alabama has enough for its fisheries and and power generation. Aaron, it seems to me that in the West, you're talking about something quite different. You're talking about drought of 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 a different magnitude, that this is existential in a way that perhaps it isn't in the much wetter Southeast. Is that right? I think that's right. I mean, the Southeast also has its share of climate problems, right? So we don't want to minimize that. But there was a study done last year, I think it came out, that looked at the mega droughts that the Southwest has experienced in the past. And it found that the current drought is the second driest in the last 1,200 years. 
Thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to look at the consequences of this population shift. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Justin Farrell is a sociologist at Yale University who's written two books about the conflict over land use in the West. Billionaire Wilderness, which is about affluent Americans buying up large chunks of land, and The Battle for Yellowstone. I asked him how he thinks about this contradictory situation where everyone seems to know that many thousands of Americans are moving to a region that can ill support them, and which is becoming less and less hospitable. But equally, there's no real mechanism for stopping that movement. It's a really interesting question that out West, at least, everyone's talking about. And we've had this sort of whiplash effect this summer because, you know, last year and then the 10, 20 years before that, everyone, all we talked about was, you know, people are moving in. Um, sometimes how do we slow it down? And how do towns adapt? And, and then all of a sudden, this summer, and, and partially last summer, but really this summer, the question has turned to, what are people going to do now? The white-collar worker who bought a home for $5 million without seeing it maybe was unaware of some of the climate risks that exist out here. This summer really brought that home in a way that is completely different than any other summer. And we've almost lost an entire summer in terms of mountain vistas and what good are those if they're shrouded in smoke and ash or what fun is mountain biking or hiking if the air poisons you and, or the heat is just crushing and you know, the lakes and the reservoirs are at, you know, 30% capacity in some places. And, and so there is all these questions that I think have not been answered. How has the migration over the past year or so, or maybe two years, changed the culture in the West? I mean, you've written before about the cappuccino cowboys in the West and the sort of clash between them and a more traditional, let's say, Western way of life. I mean, has this basically just brought an acceleration of pre-existing trends that were already in place? Or, or has something meaningful changed, do you think? No, it's, it's an acceleration and more of the same. But at the same time, I think we are hitting a tipping point in some places. And I was just in, for example, in Jackson Hole last week, and it was difficult to find a restaurant that was open or that would seat you. Um, they're they're having a really hard time keeping their workers. There's no worker housing that workers can afford. And that's just one example. But it is just more of the same in the sense of the emergence of what I describe in both my books is this new West phenomenon. And what's interesting to me is like historically, this region has been, you know, was transformed by the commodification and the, the extraction of natural resources. And today, you know, the region, and especially since COVID, I think, is being transformed by the arrival of of these wealthy settlers and the the booming real estate and recreation economy that serves them. And so I do think that it's just been 
this uh, poured gasoline on a fire that was already burning in terms of wealthy migrants who were drawn to these rural enclaves. I find that fascinating because part of the history of the West's settlement, at least by you know, sort of white Europeans moving from further east, ha- has been a sort of boom and bust in different commodities. Populations have ebbed and flowed. Is it far-fetched to imagine that climate change 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, could in fact send this migration that we're seeing at the moment into reverse? Or do you think it's more likely that people find ways to adapt? I, I don't see it reversing, but I see it maybe slowing down. And in my view, that would be a, a good thing because we're the way that some of these communities have changed is quite staggering. The way that, you know, the housing market has just been transformed. Some places, you know, a single family home has doubled in a matter of months. There's just rapid gentrification, you know, again, erasure of affordable housing and all of this. So I do think that the fact that there's smoke literally every day of the week, it seems, in some of these places, uh, the fact that, for example, here in Colorado, we have Interstate 70 running through our our state, and then it runs through. It's like a main artery of the West for transportation, for business, to get to the trails, all of that. And it's been closed for almost two weeks because of a mudslide, which is related to a wildfire. And the big draw for folks is not that, right? The funny thing is, I think humans seem to have a lot of optimism in their ability to to wrestle nature under control. And that's especially true in in the West, in an area that's dependent on natural resource extraction, energy production, all of this, that that we've been able to do that, you know, building these huge dams, but it seems like this is different. And I think that probably will determine whether or not um, we're going to see these these demographic changes persist or if, if things will slow down or even reverse. Erin, while talking to Justin, I wondered if part of the answer to all of this is paradoxically more urbanisation in the West, in the sense that a lot of the problems that he describes come about when people move West and move into you know, the vast open spaces or move into what's technically known as the wildland urban interface, i.e. You know, the edges of cities where they, where they meet the forest. I mean, if people move West but move to cities where, as your Las Vegas example showed, people are able to use water more efficiently, living in more dense places and therefore encroach less on the wildlands. Is that the answer here? I think you're on to something in that the West has historically lacked density. Um, Probably the most dense city in the region is San Francisco and then Seattle. And historically... In the West, you've seen cities build out rather than up. So if this forces kind of a change to that thinking, I think that's a good thing. But the barrier to that is high housing costs, as Justin mentioned. And you see that if you look at California, for example, a lot of the communities that have suffered from wildfires have been in the foothills of the Sierras and people live there. Yes, because it's beautiful, but also because they can afford to buy a home. And so if that doesn't change, then I don't think that you'll see the move to cities that might 
keep people safer. It's also a political will question, though, right? Because you could there's there's as I understand it, there's there's opposition to densification from people who want to keep their property values high. I mean, if you built a denser city, you would necessarily build more affordable housing in the in the process, right? Yeah, I mean, it's some of what we talked about on the podcast last week with opposition to zoning laws. It's kind of the same things that you run into and why the climate crisis in the West is really intricately connected to what's happening in the housing market. I wonder if anyone is thinking a bit longer term. I mean, could the climate crisis force an exodus from the West? Are people starting to worry about an outward migration? On a very small scale, We've already seen that happen in places, for example, that have been hit by wildfires. On a larger scale, I think it's hard to tell. But if we're thinking about what's possible, I would say you don't have to look too far back in history to see a time when climate did force people to move. And I'm thinking about the Dust Bowl in the 1930s when we saw I think nearly 300,000 farmers on the plains moved to places like California where agriculture was taking off. So I think it's definitely possible, but it probably won't happen soon. And it also will depend on how other parts of the country are dealing with their own climate impacts. Aaron, let me change tack for a minute. We heard from Doug Ducey earlier where he was talking about how people withdrew more water than Mother Nature put in. You mentioned you have Republicans in Utah grappling with climate change. I mean, thinking long term, I remember back in the in the 1990s when when Pete Wilson effectively did in Republican prospects in California by being anti-immigration. And so now it makes no sense to have a nativist Republican Party in California. So you have a non-nativist Republican Party there. Do you see the sort of green Republican Party that exists in the Mountain West as a as a model for for the National Party? I mean, should we be thinking of people like Ducey and these Utah politicians as sort of avatars in the future or as anomalies or as some combination of both? It's a really interesting question. Earlier this summer, there was a conference where all of the governors of Western states got together and a lot of Joe Biden's cabinet were there to kind of try to sell the infrastructure bill, especially the things that related to climate policy. And it was really striking to me as a person who is kind of new to the West and had come from D.C. politics to hear really very red governors talking about how important climate policy is and making sure that watersheds are resilient and that we can update water infrastructure and that we're pouring money into clean energy projects. And part of that is because they will reap the benefits of those projects being in their states. So it's quite savvy. But I think that national Republicans might look at those decisions and those politicians and think that maybe there is a way forward for the Republican Party on climate change. Maybe that's crazy optimistic, but it really struck me listening to that conference. Well, I think crazy optimism is a great place to end. But before you go, Erin, you know the score. It's quiz time. And Fasman, you're back being grilled after having had an easy ride of it last week, standing in for me as host. Okay, so... In 1977, The Economist interviewed Richard Lamb, the young Democratic governor of Colorado, about his concerns over unsustainable population growth in his state. 
Dick Lamb, who died last month at the age of 85, was a controversial figure who served three terms as Colorado governor. He first won that office in 1975, winning nationwide attention for running on a platform to actively limit economic growth to protect the environment. His popularity rested in particular on having led a successful campaign to stop which international athletic event? Oh, the Olympics. Yeah, I, right. I would have said Olympics. Ooh, how generous am I feeling? You either both get a point or half a point. It's the 1976 Winter Olympics. I'll take half a point if I, I'm up against Basman. Yeah, half Basman. a point seems fair. Okay, that seems very equitable. The 1976 Winter Olympics had already been granted to Denver, Colorado, but following spiraling costs and environmental concerns, Lamb's campaign succeeded in getting them cancelled through a referendum. The Games went instead to Innsbruck in Austria. That move was perhaps fortunate because the 1976 ski season in the West was hit by a disastrous snow drought. The Economist reported on the various woes afflicting downhill skiing, including higher energy costs, falling popularity and concerns about the risk of injury. But the article mused that the most serious challenge to American downhill skiing could come from another snow sport, which had taken off following the success of the athlete Bill Koch in those same 1976 Olympics. Which sport was it that posed such competition to downhill skiing? Was it snowboarding or is that early for snowboarding? That's early for snowboarding. That's what I thought. Cross-country skiing? I thought we might have finally found an area of sports that wasn't in Fasman's wheelhouse. But yeah, the answer is cross-country skiing. So a point to you. Interest in cross-country skiing was booming in the late 70s, apparently. We reported that it cost less than a quarter of its downhill cousin, was considered safer, and by 1977 was already responsible for a quarter of new ski sales in America. So there you go. Cross-country skiing seems a remote prospect at the moment with all the fires burning out west. But it is indeed, I can report, as a semi-Norwegian, a fine way to spend a winter. As someone who has absolutely no sense of balance, downhill skiing I've done once and it terrified me. Cross-country skiing is a pleasure. I have never skied in my life, which is like the biggest taboo for a Denverite. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I need to get on the slopes this winter, I think. Are you out in Colorado as a non-skier? Is that... Uh... I figure I just get it out in the open and avoid questions later on. Um, people now know, Erin, so your cover is now officially blown. Well, if anyone wants to teach me, I'm game. Well, there's an offer. Thank you, Erin. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks also to our producers, Julia Johnson, Amika Shortino-Nolan, and sound engineer Tom Birchall. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us about the podcast, or if you want to teach Aaron to ski via email, the address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Oh,